Well, I have a confession to make this morning. I'm a bit tired and cranky, <laughs> and I don't feel like I'm seeing the Lord very clearly today. So, just want to confess that that's my sin, and I have no excuse, but that's how I'm feeling right now. But it might be relevant because of the topic that we're going to be looking at this morning. Ephesians. So if you turn with me there to Ephesians chapter 6, and uh, we'll start at verse 10, and we'll read to verse 17, I believe. This is God's word. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand." Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this portion of Ephesians, and we thank you that it falls upon this Sunday. We thank you for your grace and your mercy that we sang about. And I thank you for this gathering, Lord, that we can come together and encourage one another and sing together and remind each other of your grace. And I pray, God, that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit right now and each one of us and help us to receive the truth of this passage of Scripture, Lord, and that we might put on the whole armor of God and stand in the evil day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, So we have come to our final portion of Ephesians, indicated by the word finally here in verse 10. Paul has brought us to the last portion. It's still part of the practical section of this epistle, but it's the last section of that section, you might say. We're coming around to the end. Kind of like in conclusion, I think some Bibles might even say. And though it is the last part of this epistle, it certainly isn't the least, if you heard that expression before, it certainly isn't the least in any way whatsoever. In a matter of fact, if Ephesians were to end in verse 9, and if Ephesians didn't go on into verse 10 in this section on spiritual warfare, that would actually not, that would be a great disservice to Christians if this section weren't included, because it's like leaving out vital information. Um, imagine you get a brand new car, and the, the guy that bought it for you is telling you all about it, and this is what it does, and this is what it does, and it's got this feature and that feature and all that, but then he doesn't teach you how to drive the car, then he's kind of done you a disservice. You might be, oh, this is great, and get in the car and crash. And likewise, in Ephesians, if all we knew was just everything Paul has told us beforehand, he'd be leaving out a vital piece of information. What is this passage about that Paul ends with? Consider now, he's writing a letter, and the last portion that he goes into is what? It is spiritual warfare, or the reality of the Christian being at war. The reality of the Christian being at war. This is something that we need to understand and realize about our own lives. Do you realize that as a Christian, you're at war? 
And though we have talked about how we're adopted, sanctified, justified, saved by grace, called to walk in holiness, called to walk in a life suitable in the light of grace, that's all wonderful. But unless we take into account of the fact that we're at war and that we have an enemy that seeks to hinder and seeks to obstruct our walk with the Lord and our vision of grace, then we're going to be severely disadvantaged. So this section is extremely important. It can't be omitted. Actually, um, one of the expositors, great expositors passed away. His name is James Montgomery Boyce. I've been reading his commentary on Ephesians. And uh, he mentioned how the very first sermon he ever preached was on spiritual warfare. And then he hadn't preached a sermon on spiritual warfare for 35 years until he was preaching through that, se- that series on Ephesians. And he realized that that indicated something. That indicated that it wasn't an important thing for him. And that indicated that in many Christians, and I ask yourself if this is true of your own life, that for many of us, spiritual warfare is kind of an appendix, and it's not that important. And we don't really see it as a very important thing. We don't think about it much. And it just kind of, we, we, we might acknowledge it's there, but not really pay attention to it. And Boyce was pointing this out, and he was showing how wrong that is. How this is not something that's just an afterthought. But as we look into the heavenlies together, and every day, right, we're called to set our eyes on things above. One of the things that we will have to reckon with is the reality of spiritual warfare in our life. We have taken a pause in our tour of heaven. Ephesians is all about heaven. It's all about seeing things from heaven's perspective. It's all about seeing things not with just your physical eyes. So if, if we're to just look at the world spiritually, like Elisha, when he showed his servant, when he prayed and said, God, open the servant's eyes, and there was all these chariots on the mountain. It's seeing life from a heavenly spiritual perspective and not merely just from what we can see, because it's so easy to do that, isn't it? I know for me, it's, and this morning, it's so easy to see life simply from a materialistic, natural perspective. It's so simple to do that. It's what we naturally do. But Paul took a pause because he was taking us on our tour of heaven. Remember how in Ephesians, Paul mentions the heavenlies many times. We're going to see that word again because Paul continues the tour now, takes us back up. He took a pause as he explained how are we to live practically in light of what we've seen. Now he goes back and he says, let's continue. Let's finish this tour. I want to show you. I've showed you what? I've showed you all the blessings that you have in heaven. We've looked up into heaven and we've opened the safe and we've seen the ocean of gold that we have in Christ. The riches of his grace and our inheritance in him. We've seen that in the heavenlies. Wow. And then we've seen Christ on the throne in the heavenlies and how he, he sits there victorious and has all authority given to him and he's our head. Then we've seen ourself in him sitting on the throne in heaven. So Paul's like, see that throne? That's where you are in Christ, right there. We've seen the temple of God or the church that God is assembling spiritually from heaven. But... Now, as we look into heaven, we see a warfare going on. And this is something that's, that is seen all throughout the scripture. If we would just simply notice that from the Old Testament all the way through to the New Testament, there is war between God and heaven and the hosts of heaven and Satan, who is a rebellious angel, and those who followed him. And so this is a reality that we see when we look into heaven. Even though we've seen all these glorious things, we've we now come to see this. Notice in verse 12, I'll just point that out at the very end. It says, we wrestle against spiritual wickedness in the heavenlies. And that's the same word. That's the fifth time Paul uses that word in Ephesians. In the heavenlies, there's a warfare that's going on. Now, that means that this passage isn't just connected to the verse that precedes it. So I don't think we should read this and think that verse 10 simply is connected to verse 9. Because Paul takes us back into heaven, this passage on spiritual warfare is connected to the whole of Ephesians. Everything we've read in Ephesians already. 
now is connected to spiritual warfare. Not just masters and slaves, but the whole thing. It has all the marks of the entire epistle in this. And why? Why now does Paul connect it all to spiritual warfare? And here's why. It's because everything that we have seen in heaven and everything that flows out of that in our, to our life in earth is challenged by Satan. I mean, amen or not? Does that make sense? Does this make sense to you? That as we've read in Ephesians 1 to, 1 to 3, all the glories of heaven and every bit of glory of God's grace Does it not make sense that now Paul says, and he connects that to spiritual warfare? Or, I mean, is that not true in your own life? Is it just, oh, I got Ephesians 1 to 3 down pat every day, it's fine. Is that how it is? (laughs) No. Actually, matter of fact, every day, it feels like warfare, doesn't it? Every day. You know why? (laughs) It's because it is. (laughs) What about Ephesians 4 to 6, the practical? Now, does that make sense to you that that's also connected to spiritual warfare? So, or is it just uh, loving, kindness, forgiveness, forbearance, unity, I got that down, there's no struggle there. Is that true? No. (laughs) Why? Does it feel like a struggle every day? Has anyone ever lived a day without a struggle? No, I don't believe it. I wish, yeah. (laughs) Why? Because everything that we've seen is challenged by Satan. Satan does not want us, brothers and sisters, and the lost. He doesn't want the lost to see the truth of the gospel, lest they be saved. Isn't that what the Bible says? Satan blinds the eyes of the non-believers, lest they see and turn and be healed, right? Satan doesn't want the lost to see, and Satan doesn't want the saved to see either, and to live in light of grace he doesn't want us to do that. He challenges that. He hates grace, and he hates God, and he hates believers, and he's angry, according to Scripture. Did you know that Satan is angry? Why? Because he's defeated, and he knows it. But he's angry nonetheless. Satan knows, it says in Revelation, that he has a short time. So this is not... The the spiritual warfare, I'll just say this about spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is not an inconclusive battle. It's not like a soccer game, like in the World Cup, when I watched Portugal and Spain, and I was biting my nails because I wanted Spain to, or I wanted Spain to lose and Portugal to win, right? I didn't know how the game would end. It's not what spiritual warfare is like. It'd rather be if we knew, if Portugal knew that Spain was going to win, they get angry and start roughhousing Spain. They start being rough on Spain. That would, that would, be, this, that would be a more accurate depiction of what's happening in, in the heavenlies. Is that ever, that's possible, isn't it? It's not that Satan thinks he might have a chance. It's that Satan knows he's finished and he hates it, and so he's playing rough. This is the situation. He wants to ruin your life. He wants to ruin your life so that you can't give glory to God. And that the church, he wants to ruin the church. It's kind of like Nehemiah building the, the this walls of Jerusalem or Ezra building the temple. And there was all the enemies that weren't wanting that to happen. And they were trying to attack and hinder. And they were, had all these different methods, didn't they? whether it was militaristic or sowing seeds of unbelief and and these things. Why? Because God doesn't want, Satan doesn't want God to have that temple, to give him glory, to manifest his wisdom to the angels. Right? Ephesians 3.10. So these things, I admit, are, again, everything we see in heaven is so far above the earth. So it's not easy for us to see grace, and it's not easy for us to even see the spiritual warfare, but we have to understand that it's real. And any form of Christianity that doesn't take into consideration this is not accurate Christianity. It's deficient. You'll be unhealthy. It's not apostolic unless we acknowledge and take into consideration this, this spiritual warfare.
John Stott said it was inevitable. This spiritual warfare is inevitable because Satan hates what God is doing. And let me say this. That means for us that this is really important now. For us to see into the heavenlies, as Colossians 3 tells us to do, to set our mind on things above, for us to see into the heavenlies, for Elliot to see into the heavenlies and to set his mind on grace and to live a life of grace will not happen except through conflict. It won't happen automatically or easily. It will happen through conflict and by equipping yourself with the full armor of God that Paul is about to tell us about here. So the We'll get to that in just a minute. But the thing to see is, brothers and sisters, if you want to see grace and live a life of grace, it will mean conflict. And conflict means you need to be equipped for it. And if we don't acknowledge that there's a conflict, then we won't seek to be equipped for it and we'll always lose. Okay. So let's look at the passage now together. Verse 10. My brethren, addressing the believers now, in conclusion of all that I've said, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, that is translated be strong in the King James. It would probably better be translated be strengthened in the Lord. Be strengthened in the Lord. Not that it can't it's not like it's wrong if it says be strong. The different feelings is this. If it is be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, then what that's saying is you have strength at your disposal. Be strong in the Lord. But if it's be strengthened, it's looking at it from a bit of a different perspective. You don't have any strength. Therefore, receive the strength that God has for you and be strengthened in the Lord. And I believe this is what it's saying. It's with a view to our weakness and our helplessness helplessness. We don't have what it takes to fight. We don't have what it takes to see into the heavenlies every day. And we don't have what it takes to live a life of grace on our own. But in the Lord, we can be strengthened in him. So it's not be strong in yourself, Wallace. And often that is the advice that people will give people, Christians or non-Christians. But in the Lord, you can be strengthened. Your weakness can be made strong in him. And the word there is endunamai, which is kind of like in, it's an endowment of power. So you don't have any power. You can be endued with power from God. And notice this very important expression here. I'd like you to see and keep this in mind for the whole rest of our discussion of this passage. It explains what being strong in the Lord is or what it means to be strengthened in him. And the explanation is this. And in the power of his might. In the power of his might. That's a very important phrase. And it's an important phrase because it comes up throughout scripture. And it's kind of shorthand for something. In the power of his might. And the Greek is kratos iskus. It comes up already in Ephesians 1.19. Turn there just real briefly. You'll know exactly, if you were here for this sermon of Ephesians 1.19, you'll know what, the, what he's saying. Paul is connecting this verse with what he said already in the, in the epistle. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, Paul is praying for the Ephesians, praying for the believers, and he, he prays that they would know by the Spirit what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his kratos iskus. That's the exact same phrase. God has mighty power that works toward us who believe. And in that, Paul says, be strengthened in that particular power. It's not this kind of ambiguous thing he's talking about. Sometimes I, I've quoted this verse many times in an ambiguous way. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And then, of course, I don't know what exactly I'm saying. <laughs> what does that mean? <clears throat> does that just mean, you know, 
I don't know. But if you remember last time we talked about this 119, a while ago we looked at this passage. And 19 is, does not end. It flows on into the next passage. Now notice the similarity between what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 6 and what he's talking about in Ephesians 1. Notice the similarities. I pray that you might know what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, Kratos Iskus, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him as his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age which is to come. And he's put everything under his feet and made him to be the head of the church. Do you see the parallel? In Ephesians 6, what does he say? We wrestle against, you need to be strengthened with his might, according to his kratos iskus, the power of his might, because we wrestle against principalities and powers and rulers and spiritual wickedness in high places. These things are, we need to see the connection between these things. The mighty power that Paul is talking about is the mighty power which God wrought in Christ when he rose him from the dead and set him far above all those baddies, <laughs> these bogeys. Okay? That is the mighty power that Paul is talking about in chapter 6. It's particularly the power that was wrought in Christ as he is now resurrected and exalted at the right hand of God above all these guys. That's the power he's talking about. Not just the power of God to create worlds, but the power of Christ above these rulers and principalities. Do you remember what is, do you remember what is, what Paul means when he's talking about powers and principalities and rulers? Do you recall? What are those? We've looked at them at least three times, I think. Three or four times already in Ephesians. But... These are spiritual principalities and powers. These are spiritual things. Some people think they're referring to earthly governmental authorities, but I don't believe that for a minute. This is talking about spiritual rulers like demons and angels, things we don't know much about. The Jewish people had quite a theology of angelology because the Old Testament really does give us a lot of information on it. Enough information at least to paint a fair enough picture that there are angelic there's an angelic war going on, there's angelic hosts and there's angelic authorities going on. So we've talked about this so I won't go into it in detail today. But Paul lists these guys that we wrestle with. That is who we're actually up against. We're not up against anything less than this. And these guys are the guys, fallen angels, who use God's law against us and against the world. Okay? They exercise authority. Even authority God granted to them to be his ministers in the world, his agents of action. But they use the law against us. They accuse. They execute judgment. They ask God, hey God, so-and-so has broken your law and he deserves to die. Can I go kill him? Law, sin, and death are all connected in this. Because a person is under the law and then they sin and they break the law, then what do they deserve according to scripture? Death, right? And these these guys know that. And they don't understand God's grace. And so they come and they say, well, let me go and execute judgment. Let me go and get these guys. Let me go torment them. Because, A, I'm just executing justice. I'm not doing anything bad. It's evil. Their motive is evil, but their means they pass as righteousness. These are the guys that are in view here. These are the things that we wrestle against in the heavenly places. But what is this power that we have known by the Spirit of God? If there is not this power, brothers and sisters, this mighty power for us to be strengthened in, then we have no defense 
against them. When they make the case, they make the case well, and we deserve to die. And there's nothing God could say were it not for Jesus. This power is the power that Christ has because he's died for our sins and has resurrected and now sits above all these guys. He has the final authority. He has the final say. So now when one of these angels comes along and says, I accuse Elliot of sinning today, and that means he deserves your divine disapproval, God, and give me free reign up upon him. And then Christ is there, and he says, no, no, I have the final say. I have the final authority. I have the final power over you. I have veto power. I trump you because my blood was shed for Elliot's sins and he believes in me. And because he believes in me, I veto your request. <laughs> no. And of course, the demons are, I'm, I, I imagine, amazed at this because they don't understand grace. Even the good angels don't quite understand grace, right? They look into it like, what on earth? What on earth is going on, right? <clears throat> yes. I hope you're catching the gist of what Ephesians is describing here. Be strengthened in the Lord and in the power of his might, which he wrought in Christ when he rose him from the dead and set him up at his own right hand, far above all principalities and powers. Be strengthened in that might, Because that's the only thing that we can have refuge in. Remember that song? The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. Where do you go when the accuser is coming at you? You run to the name of the Lord, your Savior, Jesus. You know, oh, there's much we need to talk about this, but let me just say this. It's it's the vision of the lamb that's the victory over the devil, over Satan. In the scripture, this Kratos Iskus, this mighty power, is also in the praises and the doxologies. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be all power and dominion, it says. You ever remember these statements in scripture when the whole host of heaven falls on their knees or there's a doxology at the end of an epistle and says, to Christ be all dominion and power. This is what it's talking about. To him be all power. To him be all authority. To him have the final say. He's above all these guys. I know there's justice and I know there's laws, but he, in his own righteousness and by his righteous grace, has all power to forgive my sin and to receive glory for that. So, I mean, I wish we'd sing more about that. Maybe we should. To him, and when we sing glory and honor and dominion and power to him, let's think of this, that he is, on the, he is our head and at the very top. So I, do you see, let me just say this now, spiritual warfare, what is it all about? You have all these different opinions in the Christian church of what spiritual warfare is about. And let me just suggest to you that spiritual warfare is at its heart, in essence, all about grace and law or law and grace. That's what spiritual warfare is all about. It's Satan trying to execute against you law, and it's Christ coming in and relieving you or saving you by grace. And it's the constant tension between those things in your mind every day. And I think that will become more clear as we look at what the armor is. Because if it wasn't that, and if it was something material, then maybe Paul would just say, grab a sword. You know? Buy a gun to fight the bad guys. That's not what he says. It's a spiritual warfare, and it's related to this. It's related to the tension between who's the boss in the heavenlies. Now, look at verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The wiles of the devil. That word wiles is the word methodia in Greek. That is his methods. The methods of the devil. Or the strategy of the devil. So Satan is crafty. 
Satan isn't stupid. Satan has methods and strategies that he comes at us to try to put us back into bondage. And we need to be aware of his methods and be equipped with armor in order to withstand his methods. When I was in high school, my very first year of high school, I, uh, you might be surprised to hear this, but I was in the wrestling team in high school. <laughs> my grade nine year. Because, not because I really cared much about wrestling, but I had a friend who loved wrestling. And so he, didn't, he wanted to go in the wrestling team and he invited me to come. And I decided I would go until I had to pay, and then I would quit. So I went, and I spent maybe four weeks in the wrestling team until finally, like, I had to pay, you know, because there was a tournament or something, and, and I just stepped out at that point. But another thing you need to know about me in high school is I was really, really, really small. I still am really small, but I was really small. I actually only caught up with people at the end of, like, grade nine. But I was very small. And uh, I wore a size two shoe in grade six. Um, <laughs> I was very, very small. <laughs> but uh, one thing I realized in the wrestling team, because every, I was the smallest person there, they, they have different categories of weights. And the, the lowest is featherweight. And I didn't make that category. <laughs> I, wasn't, I didn't meet featherweight. <laughs> And uh, so, therefore, I was in practice. I was wrestling against guys that were much bigger than me. And there wasn't very many little guys anyway. So I was wrestling like, I was practicing with guys that are big guys, you know? <laughs> and uh, one thing I realized is that I could do cool moves on these guys because it wasn't necessarily how big you were or how small you were. If you knew the techniques, you could. I, I mean, I remember giving this guy like a suplex or something. I don't remember what it was, but. <laughs> It wasn't very hard. It just—it was all in the technique. And it wasn't just how big the guy was. It was in me understanding the techniques of wrestling. I could, I could evade this guy. It's not just who's the toughest. There's a lot to wrestling. It's interesting that Paul speaks about wrestling here because it's not just brute force in this battle. It's methods. It's techniques. And these are the things that we need to be aware of. That's why he says that we might be able to stand against the methods of the devil. And uh, there was a, just again, there was a, a, a state championship in Maryland back in the day, and the, I can't remember their names, but one guy was very big and one guy was very small, and they were asking the small guy, why do you think you have, an, have a chance? And he goes, because I know his methods. That's how I know I can beat him. And this is the, precisely the point. Do we understand the methods or the strategies of Satan, and do we know how to counter those methods, how to respond to those methods. If we're ignorant of those methods, we won't know what to do. Well, Satan will be saying things to us, we won't even know it's Satan, and therefore we won't respond to it in any way. So the methods are what we need to understand. Here, let me give you an example of some of Satan's methods. And oftentimes, we don't really realize that it is Satan. We think it is God, or it is just truth. So, and you probably will bear witness with this. Here's a method of Satan. He comes along after you sin, and he says, oh, you've sinned. Yeah, I've sinned. Say, oh, you're condemned. You're condemned because you sinned. You sinned, and that's a wicked thing before God. Here's how wicked it is. And he explains how wicked it is, and he's absolutely correct. Satan doesn't just come out and lie. He says, and you think that you're going to get to heaven? You, as wicked as you are, you're condemned. That is a method or a strategy of Satan against a person, a lost person and a believer. So there's no hope for you because you're so bad, you're not going to get to heaven. You ever heard that before? Here's another one. Well, you've sinned. Mm -hmm. You're not a Christian because Christians don't do that. So you have a false hope. That's another thing that Satan says to us. Or here's another one. You've done a good deed. <laughs> You're awesome. You're righteous. God is totally going to accept you into heaven because of that. And that's a big one, not to be underestimated. But oftentimes we don't think of this as coming from the devil. I think this is just, yeah, truth. I am awesome. <laughs> right? <laughs> Or, or truth, I am sinful and God wouldn't let me in. Obviously, God is telling me this. God is convicting me or condemning me. 
or, you, or something bad happened to you. Somebody in your family died. Oh, now you're sick. Oh, now you got in a car accident. Oh, God has abandoned you and doesn't love you. See, this is a proof that God doesn't love you because God, if God loved you, he wouldn't let that bad thing happen to you. Another lie, another method of Satan. Or, oh, that guy sinned against you. You have a right to be bitter against him. You should be mad. I mean, that he had no right to do that to you. You're a human being. The methods of Satan. Crafty. And so often he sounds so spiritual as well. And many of you might, be, might say, yeah, I, 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 I know that, Eli. There are the majority of people in this world do not recognize those as coming from Satan at all. And even as Christians, even though we recognize it or we know it, we can often get duped as well by him. You know why Satan lies to us? Because he wants us to fear. He wants to put us in fear. He wants to take away our peace. He wants to take away our joy. He wants to bring us back into bondage. This is why he lies to us. He tries to steal, kill, and destroy that good thing that we have in Christ. Christ came to set us free. How? If lies bring us fear and bondage and all these suggestions take away our peace, then what is the opposite of that? The truth will set you free, Jesus said. The truth will set you free. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. If you don't put the armor on, you won't be able to stand against Satan's attacks in the evil day when Satan comes to you. You won't be able to. But if you put on the armor of God, this is the promise of Scripture. If you put on not just some of the armor, but the whole armor of God needs to be put on, you will be able. There's nothing Satan can do when you have the whole armor of God on. You will be able to withstand him in the evil day. So here's how we win against Satan. Here's how we win spiritual warfare. First of all, we need to know that there is spiritual warfare. We need to recognize it. Then we need to know who we're fighting. Then we need to know what his methods are. And then we need to know, what do I do to respond to his methods? This is how you win spiritual warfare. Not by ignoring that the reality of these things or by misplacing what you think you're fighting against. Then we need to know what he does and know how to respond. And God wants us to win. And so he's given us all that we need to win the war. Okay, now let's look briefly at the armor. What's the first one? I want you to notice something here. I don't believe that there's any particular order to this, that one is lesser important than the other. Than the other. All of the armor is different, but all are essentially related. And notice... I hope you'll notice as we go through this briefly what they are related in. Okay? The belt of truth, the first thing. So in those days, and as today, but in those days especially, soldiers wore belts, okay, or girdles, and they wore them for a very important reason. They wore them to tuck in their garments into their belt so that it wouldn't hinder their movement. When you're fighting in a battle, you don't want to be tripping over your robe, okay? <laughs> in those days, they wore robes. They wore things like that. And you don't want to be tripping over in battle, okay? So they wore that. They also wore it to hold their weapon, their sword, as well. But most importantly, to gird their loins and to pull up their garments and to tuck them in, to make them fit to fight, okay? The belt makes you fit to fight. Now, what is the belt called? It's called truth, the belt of truth, the belt of truth, okay? Now, there's some disagreement about this by commentators. They say, is that truth objective or is that truthfulness in our life, like honesty? I believe it's truth objective. You put on truth as a belt and you make yourself fit to fight. Here's what James Montgomery Boyce says about the belt of truth. 
he says, it is significant that Paul puts truth first. This suggests that successful spiritual warfare begins with fixing Christianity's great truths firmly in our minds. Or to put it another way, it is dangerous to rush into battle without having the great doctrines of the faith fixed firmly in our understanding. We have a tendency to think that activity is the more important thing and that convictions or truth do not matter or are at least of secondary importance. Do you, do, you, do you realize that? We often think that in spiritual warfare, the thing that is important is my action and my activity. But unless we know the truth and have girded ourselves with truth, we're not fit to fight. If you don't know what the Bible teaches about salvation, you're not going to win spiritual warfare, no matter how zealous and earnest you are. If you don't know his methods, if you don't know there is a battle, and if you, or if you know there's a battle but you have no idea what it's about, you're not going to win. You're not even prepared to fight. In Christianity, truth comes first, Boyce says, then action follows. Without truth, without doctrine, without the knowledge of who God is, who we are, what we have become in Christ, and what we have been called to do, we really don't know what kind of activity in which to engage and will be vulnerable. Does that make sense? The belt of truth, understanding the word of God, is what is necessary to make a person fit to even begin this warfare. Peter says, gird up the loins of your minds and be sober. Hope to the end. Set your hope completely on the grace that will be revealed. It's in the mind. Putting, putting truth in there, getting lies out, that gets you fit to fight. Number two, the breastplate of righteousness. Again, it's funny to find commentators, again, debate about this, because they say, is this righteousness imputed? Is this righteousness that we have at salvation, or is this personal morality? No, it's not personal morality at all. Paul is not saying that we, we fight against Satan by arming ourselves with good deeds. What he's saying is we warfare against Satan by arming ourselves with righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness. And what is righteousness? What is righteousness? Righteousness is the righteousness that comes to us through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Righteousness revealed in the gospel. You arm yourself with that. that doesn't, this isn't talking about salvation. This isn't saying that you know, you're getting saved by putting on the breastplate. It's equipping yourself and arming yourself for the fight by firmly fixing the doctrine of the righteousness that comes to us through faith in Christ that's not of our own works, but that's a gift from God, and putting that on like a breastplate against Satan's attacks. Because what does Satan do? He comes at you with those, you're condemned, you're condemned. You put that breastplate on. You, do, you stand protected, understanding that you are justified through faith in Jesus Christ and not by your own works. This is so very important. Because so, mu so much of the time, it's just, this, this is the issue of the battle. Brothers and sisters, if you have put your faith in what Christ has done for you, the Bible declares you are the righteousness of God in him. You are justified. And that is something that you arm yourself with. You put that on like a breastplate, and you don't let anyone ever take that off. You take that off, and you're, you're in grave danger. But you put that on, and you're safe. So don't ever believe that lie, that you're justified not through faith in Christ, but by your works. Make sense? Number three, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now this, it is said, is the most awkward one to interpret, because what does that mean, right? The feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of Jesus. What's the emphasis? Is it preparation? Is it is it gospel? Is it peace? What's he talking about here? Not quite. There are, again, two different takes on this. And it actually originates from the word preparation in the Greek. The word could mean preparation in the Greek, readiness. It could also mean foundation or base or established, establishment, or something that you build on. This is what the word can mean in the Greek. And I believe that it is the second 
of these two interpretations that Paul has in view. So most of our Bibles will say preparation, and usually what we hear is, that means you're ready to share the gospel with people. Usually you hear that. You're, you have a, a ready, you're, because your shoes are on, now you're ready to fight, basically. You're ready to share the gospel. But I don't believe that's what he's talking about here. First of all, because this is talking about Satan attacking you and putting on your defenses, not necessarily you going out and sharing the gospel with people. But if we take it to mean foundation, then essentially what Paul is talking about here is sturdy shoes. As a matter of fact, that's what the Greek of the word um, shod is. It's underbind. It actually means they would wrap uh, some sort of binding under their foot because they're going to be on their feet for a long time. And they need to have shoes that are not flimsy. They need to be shoes that are sturdy, shoes that can withstand running around and jumping all over the place and the heat of battle. And so basically the foundation, not talking about the ground, but the foundation of your foot, kind of like a, a horseshoe. They, you put a foundation. It's almost like that's now every, everything that the horse steps on is his horseshoe. And it protects his foot and it gives him strength. It's almost like a callus that's there. And I believe this is what Paul is talking about, that you, you bind your feet with sturdy shoes. You underbind them and make yourself firm and ready for the fight on your feet. And you do that with the gospel of peace. You shod your feet with the gospel of peace. And I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Again, just because it's the feet doesn't mean that it's necessarily related to your actual physical feet. What it is is that your feet, metaphorically speaking, are planted firmly in the gospel of peace. Where do you get your peace? The gospel. And from nothing else. You understand the gospel and you understand that it is the gospel that is what gives you peace with God and peace with others as well. And that gives you the stability and the strength in the fight. This is what John Gill says about it. John Gill was a famous pastor before Spurgeon at the church that Spurgeon preached at. He says, Here it designs a firm and solid knowledge of the gospel as it publishes peace by Jesus Christ, which yields a sure foundation for the Christian soldier to set his foot upon and stand fast on, it being that to him as the shoe is to the foot, its base or foundation. Does that make sense? So again, all these things, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, I hope you're seeing how these are all related. Do you see that they're not just isolated and coming at it from all these different perspectives and angles? It's essentially saying one thing, isn't it? Now let's look at the next thing. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the enemies. And again, in, in Paul's day, there was two different kinds of shields. You've probably heard this before. There was little round shields, and then there was big shields that they called door shields because they look like doors. They're essentially a full body shield. And this is the one, Paul, this is actually the word. It's the door shield, not the little round shield of faith. It's not like you're just going like this in the battle, but you just are standing there with one big massive shield that's protecting you from all the fiery darts of the enemy. And another thing that's interesting is that in the course of warfare, weapons and things change. So for a while they had wooden shields, but then they would fire these fiery arrows at them or fiery missiles. It's not necessarily arrows here. It could be anything that's projected. And it would, what they would do is they'd send a volley of fiery projectiles and it would stick in and burn the shields and the people had to throw their shields away. And then the next volley of arrows would decimate them because then they don't have a shield. It's now burning. And there's like battles, historians describe battles like that. And then they, of course, they changed their shields. And they got shields that could quench fiery arrows. They put, I don't know, skins or something on it and doused it so that it couldn't be burned. And this is the kind of shield that faith is. It's a shield that can withstand all the fiery darts of the evil one. What is it? It's faith. It's believing God over believing the devil. That's, all, that's what faith is. It's resting yourself on the word of God. 
is choosing to believe. Everyone believes something, and even unbelief is believing something. If God says something and the devil says something, and you doubt God, you're believing Satan. But if you believe God, you're doubting Satan. Faith in God is what's in view here. And when we exercise faith in God, we have a shield that can withstand every missile that the devil flies at us. This is a promise in Scripture. Faith overcomes the world, it says in 1 John. And faith, a shield is one of the most important pieces of a battle, in battle. And for us, in this spiritual warfare, faith is, is our, our vital defense, defensive armor. So, faith, brothers. Let me just say, brothers and sisters, just to encourage you to not leave home without your faith <clears throat> and to exercise faith. Trust your shield and exercise faith whenever this Satan comes at you with his methods, whatever they may be. You lean on God's words. And the last one now is the only offensive piece. Oh no, excuse me, there's two more, isn't there? <clears throat> the helmet of salvation. The helmet protects your head. Very vital. And here it says the helmet of salvation. What does that mean? Does it mean getting saved? I don't believe so. Because this is, again, armor you're putting on as a believer to protect yourself in the battle. You're putting salvation on as a helmet. And I think it's easier to be understood. Paul says the same thing in 1 Thessalonians. He says, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I believe, verse 8, he says, put on the helmet of the hope of salvation. And I think that's the same feel here. You're not getting saved, but you're arming yourself with salvation, the hope of salvation, that I am saved, I will be saved. I have that hope, not a wish, but an anticipation. And that will see me through. Hope, it says in Scripture, gets us through all sorts of trials and tribulations. So in a battle, what a man needs is hope. When the battle's going, if you lose hope, your morale goes down, you're toast. But you keep that hope up. No matter how fierce the battle, no matter how the odds are against you, you have hope that you're going to win, and you stand in the battle. So, brothers and sisters, as, as we fight our daily battles... Every day we talked about it, it's a struggle to see grace and live a life of grace. We need to arm ourselves in the morning with the hope of salvation. Put that on, as our, on our head and not let it get off. It's so practical, isn't it? Even though he's speaking figuratively, it's so practical. You wake up and you arm yourself with the hope of salvation. You go through your day with the hope of salvation. Could you imagine how life would change if we walked through our day with hope? And what a hope it is. What a hope, as we've seen already in Ephesians. And now, lastly, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, which is finally, this, I believe, is the piece of equipment that actually makes Satan run away. Let me say this, that if you don't utilize this sword, then you can stand there with a shield all day and the arrows will just not stop coming. The arrows will be quenched, but you'll be sitting behind a shield all day. And nobody wants to do that. We want to win the battle. And the Bible doesn't say that we just stand there with a shield all day until we die. The Bible says resist the devil or stand. And what happens? He will flee from you. He will actually flee from you. And this is the weapon of all that does this. All the other ones, truth, Righteousness, gospel of peace, hope of salvation, faith, those are all for us not running away. Now this one is for Satan running away. Okay? What is the sword of the Spirit? It tells us it is the Word of God. There's the Word of God, the expression in the Bible, there's, it's, it's found all over Scripture, but sometimes it says the logia of God, and sometimes it says the rima of God. Logia is in a cosmic sense, the Word of God. It's Christ, the Word of God. The one that holds all the world together. Here, it's Rima, which specifically means the spoken Word of God. The, the, the spoken Word of God. And 
that specifically applies to the scriptures, for one. I'm not saying it's only the scriptures, because if God speaks to somebody, like it actually says, the rima of God came to John the Baptist in the wilderness. That is the word of God, the prophetic word that he had. Not the logia, you know, Christ in his cosmic sense, but the word, the word that he had, the message, came to John the Baptist. For us, we have the rima of God right here. This is the word of God in a specific sense of it being spoken by him. And why does he say the rima is the sword? Because the word of God is truth, and it's by the word of God that we contend and fight with Satan and put him to flight. We actually say, no, no, Satan, your lie isn't correct because thus saith the Lord, or it is written, he has said this, and God doesn't lie, and this is true. So you're wrong. That's the rima. That's utilizing the word. I don't think that's just cliche sort of American Christianity that says the sword is the Bible. I believe, in, as a matter of fact, that is in fact what he's talking about here, the scripture, or a word from God, which is the scripture. And this is often pointed out, but the ultimate example of spiritual warfare that we see in Scripture is the Lord Jesus Christ. When he himself, God in the flesh, fought with Satan over words. And how did, how did he put him to flight? How did he put away all of his doubts that he was putting into his mind and his suggestions? And his temptations, he did it always by the word. He said, it is written, referring to the scripture and appealing to the authority of God's spoken word. That is how he fought with Satan. If, if we fight with Satan with our own words, Satan is not going to go away. Satan is, leave me alone. Leave me alone. No, he's not going to listen to you. Or come up with anything what you will, and he won't run away, but you speak to him God's word, which Satan knows is truth, and you remind him of that, and you speak to him of that, and it's like driving a sword up his ribcage, okay, because he knows it's truth, and these words, they dispel, and they scare the living daylights out of Satan, I believe it. I believe Satan is afraid of the word of God. He works in darkness. The word of God brings light. He works by lies. The word of God brings truth. And the word of God speaks of our salvation and the grace of God and the power of God to save. His mighty power. It also speaks of Satan's downfall. And it exposes Satan. So you see Jesus contending with the devil in the desert. And this is the only weapon we have to do that. Which means we need to know the Bible. I don't think Jesus had a scroll in the desert. Where is that? Where is that passage about man shall not live by... Uh... I don't think he was doing that. <laughs> it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then Satan, knowing that the word of God is powerful, brings up the word. Well, the word of God says if if the angels will bear you up, so you should jump off. And then Jesus brings out this wonderful biblical hermeneutical principle. It is also written, you got to look at the whole Bible in context, Satan. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. Satan doesn't argue with it. He knows it's true. And so we fight also with the word, but it requires us to know it. So here's a challenge. Like any swordsman, and if Edwin were here, we could ask him. But you don't, you're, not good at, you're not good at sword fighting the first time you pick up a sword. And there's all sorts of techniques you need to learn. You need to get familiar with it. And so it is with the Bible. We get familiar with it. We get used to using it. We understand it. So that when Satan comes with his lies, we recognize it. And we know how to respond to him by saying, it is written, according to the word of God, the rima of God, he has said this. So what do you say when he says, you've sinned, Wallace, and you're condemned? You can say it's a lie, and he'll keep saying, no, it's not. It's not a lie. You've sinned. You could respond to him by saying, it is written. Romans chapter 8, verse 33 and 34. Who can lay any charge to God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he that can condemn me? 
It is Christ that has died, not how good I am. It is Christ that has died, yea, also has risen and is sitting at the right hand of God with all of his iskratus, iskus, and he's the one who finally trumps you, my condemner. And if it wasn't for Christ, you're right. Yeah, I would be condemned. But it is written, and you respond to him. And what does Satan do? He doesn't have any, I've experienced this in my own life, that as I respond to those lies with the word of God, there is no counterattack to those things because you know it's truth and so does he. What about you sinned and you're not a Christian? Christians don't do that. It is written, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. I'm just suggesting that. There's probably many more. You did a good deed you are so righteous. How do you respond to that? Yeah. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, Romans 3.19. So no, Satan, I don't, get, I don't get righteous by my works here. Something bad happened to you. God doesn't love you. What do you say to that? How about, again, Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39 where it says, I'm persuaded that neither height nor depth nor angels or principalities or things to come, things present, things future, heaven, hell, earth, whatever, cannot separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus my Lord. No, Satan. There's a beautiful story of D.L. Moody, and he, he, when he was in Scotland, he visited a Christian who was a paralytic since he was 15, and he was an older man now. And he was so full of joy, Moody said. He was just so happy. And he, Moody was like, asked him, like, where do you get your joy? I mean, why are you so happy? You're paralyzed. You've been paralyzed for years. And he goes, and I think they had a discussion about, do you ever doubt about the love of God? He says, no, because whenever de the devil tells me that God doesn't love me or he's punishing me, I just take him to Calvary. <laughs> you know? I just remind him of Calvary, that God so loved me that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life. The love of God was demonstrated toward me at the cross. He takes him to Calvary. And that's why he was so happy and joyful. Moody was struck by that. And so he related that story. Isn't that beautiful? Because the devil sure probably could fire a bunch of arrows there, right? But he responded with the truth. What else could that man have to have joy in but in the truth of God's rima? What about, that guy sinned against you. You have the right to be bitter. Man, he's a jerk. How dare he? How about uh, Colossians 3, verse 13? Forbearing with one another, forgiving one another. If any man has a quarrel against any, just as Christ forgave you, so do ye also. Or let all bitterness and wrath be put away from you with all malice. So this is how we fight. And it... It, I read this very interesting thing that lion trainers, and this is, this is how we'll close, but just catch this. Lion trainers, they say, or those who train lions or tigers, you ever wondered how they do that? Like how they get into a cage with a lion, why the lion doesn't rip them to shreds? Because he could. What does he have? A chair and a whip. Come on. <laughs> a chair. <laughs> Choose your weapon. You're going to go face a lion. I'll take a chair. <laughs> you, know, smack. you ever wonder how they uh, survive in those cages? This is what they say. Lion trainers and tiger trainers say this. You keep the lion afraid of you, and he won't bother you. But if you give him a moment, like it, you have to constantly make him afraid of you. Because if you give him, if, you, if he's afraid of you, but then suddenly for a minute, you, he, the fear goes down, he'll attack you and kill you. You keep him always afraid of you by swinging that chair and whipping that thing, and that lion is afraid of you, and he won't attack you. This is what they say. And I thought that was a, an amazing insight. Because what does the devil want us to do? He wants us to be afraid. And it's like this battle between fear. He's throwing these lies out to you to make you afraid. You're guilty, you're condemned, this, that, and the other. Puts you into bondage, takes away your peace, and makes you afraid. 
And all you need to do is stand there with your defensive armor on and with your offensive weapon, and you answer that Satan, who is described as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, you answer him with the word of God, and you make him afraid so that he runs away. And that, I believe, is a perfect picture of our warfare with him. You can make the devil afraid by reminding him of Calvary. And if you don't, he'll make you afraid. And that's the battle. So that is our spiritual warfare. To win it, we need to acknowledge it. It's there and it's real. We need to know who we're fighting against. The roaring lion. We need to know his methods and not be ignorant of them. And we need to know how to equip ourselves and to fight against him with truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, the hope of salvation, faith, and the rima of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the armor of God that you have given to us. And we thank you, God, that this armor makes us able to stand in the evil day and to quench all of Satan's fiery darts. And I just thank you for that, Lord. I thank you, God. I pray for each one of us, Lord, that we would equip ourselves daily, on a daily basis, acknowledging the reality of this fight. That, Lord, we would become skillful with the weapons that you give us. And Lord, that we would learn how to put Satan to flight constantly. And that we would also be able to help other people who are struggling in the battle. Make us warriors and soldiers of grace. Help us to see into the heavenlies every day. And I thank you that in all these things we are more than conquerors through you who love us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.